The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Marshall Matters with me, Winston Marshall. Today I'm joined by British comedy legend David Baddiel. David has been a stalwart of British comedy since I was a little boy. He's a novelist, stand-up comedian, documentarian, television presenter, and most importantly of all, as far as I'm concerned, the man behind the most beautiful, subtle, and moving song of the last 25 years, Three Lions, Football's Coming Home. His recent book, Jews Don't Count, was praised by Sir Keir Starmer as brilliant, and he's just wrapped up his stand-up tour, Trolls, Not the Dolls, which I was lucky enough to see at the Bloomsbury Theatre in London. David, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. That's a very nice intro. I'm going to have to qualify just one thing that you said in it, which is, I mean, I'm certainly not going to qualify what you said about Three Lions, uh, but I am not the man responsible. I am the man responsible with Frank Skinner and Ian Brodie for that song. Of course. It was very much a co-written song, uh, but that's a lovely thing to say about it. You've done more with that song than I could ever have dreamed to have done in, or anything I've done in music. To have a song that is sung by the entire nation every two years. I mean, it unifies the nation, completely beloved by everyone. Is that so, an overwhelming thing for you? It's lovely. I'm going to qualify that as well because it unifies England. Uh, yeah, it's, right. much ha- it's much hated in Scotland and a bit in Wales, although I think they're slightly more tolerant of it in Wales. But um, <laughs> it is beautiful, yeah. One of the things about Three Lions, I think, which is important to me is... I think it's a really, really unusual example of an absolutely grassroots phenomenon in that when we first released it in 1996, it was kind of weird in a way because we were left field writers of that song in the sense that it was given at the height of Britpop, not not unreasonably to Ian Brodie and the Lightning Seeds. And he said, oh, I think David and Frank Skinner should write the lyrics. And then we, because they're the kind of nation's football fans, because we were doing the TV show Fantasy Football, and then we cheekily said, can we sing it as well, and whatever. And the FA never really liked it. The FA always felt it was a bit like, you know, they didn't like some of the references in it. They were a bit taken aback that it was a song essentially about the pathos of England losing, all that kind of stuff. And they didn't suppress it, but they did say, we don't really want it played at Wembley at matches and blah, blah, blah. And so the song initially went to number one, uh, which was great. We were so, we were very excited about that. We thought that was the end of it because it then got knocked off number one by the Fugees. And, and me and Frank just thought, oh, it's great to have a number one. That's it. And then we were at England, Scotland in that tournament. And I don't know, you're a, I assume you are a football fan. Oh, very much, yeah. yeah. I, I, remember, I went to some of those games and it, I remember it being sung throughout the games. But maybe that's well. No, well, it memory. wasn't. It wasn't. That that's actually uh, a slightly rosy memory of it. It wasn't <laughs> sung originally. Like we weren't playing well. Like like the the song requires. It's a really weird combination of sport and art because it requires England to play reasonably well for the song to be yeah. sung, right? And we weren't playing well. England drew with Switzerland in the first game of that tournament, and then we played Scotland, and we weren't playing well against them until the second half. When Gary McAllister missed a penalty and Gaza scored an incredible goal, we beat them. And the sun almost came out at that moment. And the DJ at Wembley, who I owe a great debt to but don't know the name of, against the wishes of the FA, put the song on. And here's what I mean by it being a grassroots phenomenon. 
we didn't know at that point that the song had already been taken to the hearts of people because the whole crowd joined in spontaneously at that moment. 87,000 people. And we're looking around thinking, oh my God, all these people, they all just know the words. Like it, It's like the song has always been there. right? And that was the first time it was ever sung by a crowd at Wembley, but they all joined in. No karaoke big screen at that point in time, I should say. There's no forcing of it. It just happened. And what a feeling. It's an incredible thing. I've said in the past, so I'll say it again, that you're supposed to say that the greatest moment in your life is when your children are born, but fuck that. This was, this was, <laughs> this was well above that. Um, it was just an unbelievable thing. And I, even though it's now much more established and people sort of expect it, I still feel there is a spontaneity that it chimes so much with what it feels like to be a football fan and an England football fan that people want to sing it without any kind of forcing of it. Yeah. Well, football is one of the recurring themes in your latest book. Well, it's not your latest book. I think you have another book out since. Uh, it's, my, it's my latest adult book. I have a children's book out since Jews Don't Count, if that's what you, you refer to. Uh, I have a children's book, which I might as well plug, called The Boy Who Got Accidentally Famous. I don't know how many people who listen to your podcast. Well, I'm sure lots of them have children, but we'll be interested in that. Anyway, yes, In Jews Don't Count was my last adult book. So football is one of the recurring themes in Jews Don't Count. Now, Jews Don't Count, if I'm going to describe it, and do, uh, if you think I've got this wrong, do, do correct me. But I read it, it's a polemical, from the point of view of a progressive, criticising anti-Semitism within progressivism. Now, you don't say that anti-Semitism doesn't come from the far right or the far left or Islamist as well. That's a, that's a separate issue, but you deal with, specifically in this book, the blind spot of anti-Semitism within the contemporary progressive movement. I deal with the anti-Semitism that appears in progressive discourse, in the conversation around identity. Uh, and that, So progressive is quite a wide spectrum uh, because I think that although the people who are driving that conversation are basically quite sort of left wing, if you like, their ideas drive an agenda that is much greater than, than theirs. So, for example, there's a moment in the book, a sort of footnote, when David Cameron calls me what I call the Y word to my face. And I say, you know, this is an example of what I'm talking about, of the falling out of concern around Jews, because he wouldn't have done that. I don't, I don't think he would have used a similar hate word for another minority if he was speaking to a member of another minority. Now, you might say, well, he's not progressive. But I would say that part of him that knows that you're not meant to do that to other minorities is, the, is an influence of a progressive agenda and a good progressive agenda, but that he hasn't applied to Jews. So it's quite a wide spectrum. But also, it's about the differences between what you've just described, which is the very direct, very obvious, very kind of straightforward anti-Semitism you get from the far right and other sources, as opposed to the rather needing to be deconstructed, passive neglect and a lack of concern around representation and inclusion and diversity and offence that you get from the progressives. Yeah, that's what it's about. So the football that comes up, it's a bit of both of this. So on on the one hand, you, you describe incidents of obviously far-right racist, uh, I would call it, you, you being abused at Chelsea Football Club. But then there's also this other version of anti-Semitism you, you describe. I think one example I remember is you trying to make a film about anti-Semitism and, and kick it out being quite... Yeah, to be honest, to be honest, that's a dynamic, Winston. It's, it's all within one story. But you have alighted on the point, which is... So for anybody that hasn't read it, it begins with a series of examples of what I'm talking about, the, the, of Jews don't countism. And th in that particular example, yes, there was a man at Chelsea 
who, inspired by something that has gone on in football for years, which is the chanting of the word yid, what I deliberately call the Y word, in a way to bring home the fact that this is a word that somehow is more sayable than other words, that a man behind me and my brother, and we go to Chelsea all the time, just starts shouting, fuck the yids, fuck the yids, and then fuck the Jews, fuck the Jews. And in a way, my point is, so, far-right racism towards Jews exists. Exists in football. That's not a surprise. The point is... In the programme, when that happened in 2008, it was already saying any racist abuse, any racist chanting, anyone guilty of that will be ejected from the ground for life. And there are stewards whose job it is to spot that and to apply that stricture. And no one did anything. And similarly, yes, when we went to kick racism out of football, it was quite difficult. I mean, they did do it. To be fair to them, they did eventually do it, although only when I paid for half the film and Gary Lineker got involved. But nonetheless, they did eventually put out this film, The Y Word, about it. It, There was an enormous pushback initially to it. So my point in relating that story is to say, look, far-right, violent, really abusive anti-Semitism completely still exists. But this book isn't really about that. It's about the fact that in a culture that, and football is a very good example of it, that is honing itself continually, policing itself continually about abuse and racism and all types of discrimination coming from the terraces, how can that happen? How can that happen that that type of racism is so missed out that I can be, and my brother can have someone shouting, fuck the Jews, like 10 yards behind us and no one does anything? I was thinking about that not long ago. There was these West Ham fans on a plane back from a, an away game in Belgium. I saw it, yeah. And there's a Hasidic Jewish man uh, taking his seat and they're chanting at him anti-Semitic uh, songs. songs. And I do... I do think that the, I believe that they have been banned from West Ham and so I'm not entirely sure on comparing uh, what their punishment's been to let's say the anti-black racism we saw over the summer but one noticeable difference I found was that that video which was appallingly and shocking didn't capture the imagination of certainly not Twitter but the nation quite in the same way that the anti-black racism rightly was condemned in in the summer is that, is that an, an example of well that's a constant thing i think i mean it's changing a little bit partly i think because uh, i'll be honest because of jews don't count i think it's had it shifted the dial a bit so uh, if you want to use twitter which is a complex thing to do as some kind of barometer of notice of these kind of things then issues around jewish offense get more noticed, they're more, slightly more likely to trend and to get some kind of virality and therefore notice than they used to. But yeah, that video got some notice, but most people listening to this still probably don't know what we're talking about, whereas they, whereas they will know what you're talking about as regards uh, Marcus Rash- Rashford and the other uh, penalty takers who got abuse over the summer. I mean, there's all sorts of complexities as well, which is that for people who don't know, the, the, the chanting of anti-Semitic stuff at football has this excuse. It actually, there's a big article in The Athletic, which is a sport thinking, sport publication. Uh, also online, I did an interview. There's a big article in that, a very good article by a Spurs fan 
essentially calling for the end of the use of that word. So for people who don't know, the excuse is always given that that word just means Spurs fans uh, because Spurs fans in some way own the word. And that's deeply offensive to juice. The idea that Spurs fans own that word because there is no other example of a hate word for a minority being reclaimed by a group that is not that minority. Spurs fans are not Jews. Spurs fans are mainly non-Jewish. They have a mythic, slightly racist uh, identity as being very Jewish. They're not. 95% of them are not Jewish, and so therefore they have no right to reclaim that word. But I know for, for a fact that those... It's very interesting, that video, from that point of view, in that those blokes, those West Ham fans singing, at some level, they will be thinking, what's the problem? These songs are just about Spurs fans. And yet they were singing them at an Orthodox Jew. So the blurring of Spurs fan and Jew is something that happens all the time in those songs. Uh, and again, these are things that just wouldn't be allowed. But I, I noticed, again, Twitter's a stupid space in many ways. But I noticed that when that article got posted, which is a big article about you know it's time for Spurs essentially to stop singing this song because of the various after effects it has and also because it's just not viable anymore for them to have whatever they think that identity is. Loads of people still said, it's not offensive. I, I don't think that word is... I've got Jewish friends who don't find it offensive, blah, 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 blah. So a, a much stronger pushback than you will get to the calling out of other types of racism. The, the, I'm glad you bring up Tottenham because this is something I wanted to talk to you about and, and I totally accept that it's blurry. And what, are, blurry. What, what are you? I'm a Manchester United fan. Uh, but I did go to Tottenham recently with a Tottenham fan who is Morris Glassman, who's a man behind Blue Labour, uh, uh, Lord Labour peer, and he has quite a different opinion. And I told him I was interviewing you and that I remembered from your book, uh, and I have it here, that you actually just made this point. If there was a club from a part of London that was thought of as predominantly black and the mainly white fan base of that club decided to call them themselves the N-words or the N-word army, and that led to opposing fans chanting racist hate songs based around the N-word back at them, it would be stopped and the club shut down immediately, which is the point you've just made. I not in, in any way want to excuse the use of the Y-word, and I've, I've heard it used in very offensive ways, but he, Morris, had a, a slightly different slant on the history of Tottenham with... Yeah, I, uh, I sort of know what Morris's thing will be. They were originally racistly abused as the Jewish club and Tottenham fans decided to own it and therefore it's a kind of enveloping in their minds of sort of support for their Jewish fans and that's... Well, that's yeah, and that's somewhat of a British... There's a positive British humour to that. It's like, yeah, and we these are our neighbours, these are our Jewish yeah, I, I, brothers I and sisters. I, I, you know, look, for a start... There are, you know, a pocket of Jewish Spurs fans who think it's, it's great and part of their identity and they see that positivity. Uh, that They are small compared to the wider Jewish community. That's one of the things about this, is that for a long time it was seen as being like all about Spurs, right? But it's not all about Spurs. It's, and that's part of the anti-Semitism. It's about Jews, right? And not just football fans, but if we're going to talk about football fans, Jewish Chelsea fans, Jewish Arsenal fans, Jewish West Ham fans, who A, have to hear this being shouted, and B, have to hear their clubs shouting it back with menaces, right? And uh, this, the, one of the things this article does, which is very good, which is that the, the word itself, not just the associated anti-Semitic views, the word itself is chanted by Chelsea fans, but just in a horrible way, right? And that dynamic, Spurs fans are responsible for that in their ownership of this word. And the history makes no difference. Because I think what Morris is missing out in 
is uh, what a lot of some Spurs fans do, including some Jewish Spurs fans, is they make this an issue of how it started and blame. And, you know, we were trying to do this. It's, it's only because Chelsea fans and Arsenal fans, blah, 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 you know, do this. And I just think, no, it, that it doesn't really matter how it started. What matters is in the present state that we're in, which comes back to what we're talking about, which is the context of Jews don't count, which is a very, very high triggered and monitored and policed conversation around what is offensive the idea that you can have 20,000 people or 40,000 people chanting a hate word for Jews and leading to reaction from another 20 or 40,000 people or whatever chanting more extreme hate word for Jews and somehow this lovely history cleanses it is bollocks. I'm certainly with you on, on the... I don't feel like it's cleansed, but and I remember going and hearing it and I, you do get tense hearing 20,000 fans shouting the Y word like that and positive as it might be to some it is quite shocking i think it's it's difficult for i'm sure I mean, i'm not i'm not i'm sure i don't absolutely don't deny morris's sincerity but i think it's very hard for someone who's grown up with it who has normalized it in that way a, a jewish spurs fan to hear what it actually sounds like on the other side of the fence to a jew you're not to a chelsea fan not to an Arsenal, to a jew what it sounds like you know, what I feel like, and what I, what I felt like, by the way, for 30 years in Chelsea, when that chance starts, is frightened. That's what I feel. Not just cringy, frightened. I feel actual sense of race memory being triggered by very, very large crowds of burly men chanting the word yid hatefully. And that, I'm afraid, is utterly linked to Spurs doing it, whatever, you know, nice spin on it Morris has in his head. Morris is fine to make that point, but he's wrong. With Jews Don't Count having come out, you you mentioned earlier that the dial's been pushed a bit. And I I know you you popped over to Sakir's house during lockdown. He said at the... uh, Yeah, I want to just make a point about that, right? Because a few people in all the big... I got There was a fucking firestorm about that. And I was trending for like three days or whatever and did that thing that I sometimes do now, just staying off Twitter during that time, which is actually very healthy, if somewhat difficult. By the way, I've got a documentary on, which I might as well plug, on BBC Two called David Baddiel, Anger, Social Media and Us, which is about the whole phenomenon of rage and madness on social media, but also it's about my own addiction uh, to Twitter and uh, me trying to deal with that and whatever. But I didn't, I should make it clear, a few people in who were being funny about it, rather than the people who were raging about Keir Starmer, said, what are you like an encyclopedia salesman now? Do you go door to door <laughs> with your copy of Jews Don't Count? No, I'd been texting, and he'd been texting me, Keir Starmer. Keir Starmer, which he doesn't make clear, he'd been texting me, you know, I think part of Keir Starmer's project in, you know, trying to exercise the spectre of anti-Semitism from the Labour Party is to talk to Jews who've got a voice, and one of them is obviously me. And so he's been, he's actually been texting me for a while saying, shall we have coffee and whatever? That was before the pandemic, and then the pandemic happened, then, and I wrote the book, which came out during the pandemic. And then in those conversations, I said, well, maybe you should just read this book. Uh, and I said, I'll send it to you. And then when he told me his address, it's quite near where I live. So I said, oh, I'll just pop around and drop it around. I wasn't just hawking the book on the door, which uh, is what it felt like a little bit the way he described it. Uh, but he was really nice about it. And one of the interesting things about that is, you know, there was pushback. You know, the columnist Owen Jones condemned Keir Starmer for saying that in this way that I think is, you know, very certainly reductive. Keir Starmer, one of the things he says is, it's a brilliant book, thank you Keir, it makes it very clear, 
that anti-Jewish racism uh, is held as a, a different standard, he says, to other racisms, right? Now, that is a simplified way of talking about what my book is about, but it is basically right with the caveat that I am talking mainly about within the space of progressive discourse. I'm not talking about mainstream society where lots of, you know, racism is mu- is as strong or more stronger or whatever. It's, it's, a, it's a much more complicated thing to talk about in a way to sort of try and, you know, quantify racism within society in general. But it would certainly be the case that within the progressive space, you know, and Owen Jones and others would admit that there are problematic blind spots, however you want to describe it, around what anti-Semitism is and how bad it is. But what Owen quoted was just Keir Starmer saying that thing about anti-Semitism is held to different standards to other racisms. So he accused him of saying something that was offensive to people of colour. That saying that is somehow offensive to people of colour because it implies that the racism against people of colour, that they're privileged in some way, that they have a privileged access to concern about their racism, right? But what was weird about it was, obviously, the quote was about my book. Mm. So Owen Jones hasn't read my book. I mean, he may have done now, but he hadn't read it when he did that quote. But the fact is, I then got caught in a massive... I mean, it wasn't just him, but I'm sure Keir Starmer endorsing my book would have led to a firestorm anyway, but it certainly stoked the firestorm. And then he kind of slightly disingenuously tweeted, oh, I I wasn't talking about David's book. I was just talking about Keir Starmer saying this thing. Uh, But it should be understood that I am talking about a particular space. And also, I have seen people say who want to take Jews Don't Count down, that the idea of Jews Don't Count is somehow offensive to other minorities in implying that they have a a more privileged space or that their racism is taken more seriously. So the two things to say about that is, number one, I think it is within certain spaces, within certain discourses, the progressive discourse, and I'm just going to carry on saying that. Number two, Jews do feel this, right? One of the things about the progressive ear is it supposed to listen without challenging when a member of a minority talks about the specifics of the racism against them. That's like an article of faith, is it not? For progressive people, is you listen to black people when they tell you they have suffered racism and you don't challenge it. It is definitely the case that most Jews in this country feel that on the left, certainly, that the racism against them somehow counts for less than racism against other minorities. And saying that should be something they listen to rather than finding a way of saying you're not allowed to say this because it's somehow racist itself to say that. It's basically a tactic that leaves Jews nowhere to go if you then say you can't say this, you can't say Jews don't count because it's offensive to other minorities. Hmm. So with these conversations now happening within Labour, are you happy that that, that, that it's happening, that, do you think it's making things clearer with Sir Keir taking it, you know, speaking about it, that it's moving the conversation along, or do you see... Do you see well, this? yeah, no, I, I absolutely think that, but I think I talk in the book, which you might remember, about how one of the big, big problems is that anti-Semitism, in a weird way now, because at the end of the day, calling out anti-Semitism, concern about anti-Semitism, should be just like any other concern about racism, right? You should just be able to say anti-Semitism is bad and we sh- you shouldn't do it, right? To be very banal. But what has happened is, because of the Corbyn situation, really, is that calling out anti-Semitism, being against anti-Semitism, has now slightly become something that the left see as the preserve of the right. Uh, within the sort of teams, lane-staying that people bloody think in terms of politics now so that when Keir Starmer says anything about anti-Semitism in my book I use the example of the day that Corbyn got suspended you know Keir Starmer said 
that he wanted to build bridges with the Jewish community, right? Now, that's a good thing. And, that, and, and you would have thought on the left, you'd think that's a positive thing. But no, it's immediately taken as this is a purge of the left. Not even a moment of thinking, well, maybe he actually means it. Maybe we should think about this in terms of the racism that he's trying to take apart. It's just immediately deflected to being seen as an attack on the left. And I think that happens now all the time. So that similarly him endorsing my book will be seen as like, this is basically Keir Starmer saying something right wing. That's what's so weird about it, is that, you know, anti-Semitism, which is totally at heart something that comes from the far right, caring about anti-Semitism is now seen as a right-wing thing by the left in the weird looking-glass world that we've ended up in. One thing you, you talk about uh, in, in Jews Don't Count is the anti-Semitism being a simultaneous punching up and punching down where there's the old trope that, that, I, that both of these apply to how the Nazis treated the Jews, where the Jews run the world in this sort of racist fantasy, and they're also like vermin and below, and that, that simultaneously happening at the same time. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the, the, I mean uh, so Jews Don't Count really is a series of examples of Jews not counting, and then the rest of the book, which is the bulk of it, I guess, is asking why. And there's lots of reasons why, but the sort of number one reason is what you've just described, which is the Jews kind of uniquely amongst minorities, at least in the West, are associated not just with what all other minorities are associated with, which is a kind of negative idea, a sort of straightforwardly negative idea, which is they're vermin, they're low, they're thieves, they're liars, they're dirt, whatever. It's this high status negative high status which is that they're powerful privileged in control of the world or whatever and although that comes from the far right that definitely exists as well on the left in fact i would say that exists in society in general i would say that notion of jews as powerful and privileged and certainly rich and that's what leads to the exclusion of jews from what i call the sacred circle of minorities because at the end of the day the notion of progressive support, of allyship, is about vulnerability. It's about like, oh, you know, trans people or gay people or uh, black people or whatever are under threat from power and we need to support them. And the idea that Jews somehow are not, indeed in some cases Jews sort of are power, then, mm. then there's an ambiguity there and that ambiguity is very clear to me. One of the things that wasn't that clear to me but became clearer to me after I wrote the book is just how nursery-level people's misunderstanding of this is. So I got quite a lot of people saying to me, oh, I didn't realise it was offensive to say that Jews are rich, right? And what I realised about that is not only is it a misunderstanding in terms of, like, data, because Jews are no more rich, really, than like, I discovered when I was doing some, the small amount of research that's in that book. It's not really a researchy book. Is that Hindus, apparently, are the, the richest kind of minority in the world, as they have the most millionaires, whatever. But more importantly, I think that a lot of people are thinking something very, very banal, which is rich is good. Rich is good, isn't it? So Jews being rich, that's a good thing. And what they're missing out there is the history because historically saying that Jews are rich is not good because richness does not sit in an easy way in history what happens is people think I don't think they should have that richness I think I'm envious and angry about that richness I'm going to burn their house down and that's happened historically over and over and over again in fact I was recently in York 
And you may know there was a massacre in York in, I think, 1162. Don't quote me on that. 150 Jews got massacred in Clifford's Tower. Uh, Most of them took their own lives because there was a mob outside. And that started because uh, a Jewish moneylender, and Jews were moneylenders because they couldn't, they weren't allowed to work the land, they weren't allowed to own property in a normal way. One of the things they were allowed to do was lend, but a Jewish moneylender had uh, a lot of nobility, had huge debts against that money lender and felt he was too rich. So they stirred up anti-Semitic trouble in the villages and that led to the massacre of 150 Jews. And this is just a constant thing in Jewish history is the notion that Jews are rich and powerful and privileged is never a good thing. It always leads to huge envy and violence. Judaism and these uh, issues around anti-Semitism come up in your show Trolls, not the dolls. Which I really enjoyed it, and uh, there's. I, I don't. I hope this isn't awkward if I recite what was my favourite joke from the night. Okay, no, uh, do I, it. Go ahead. I, I want to do it. I want to because I think it sums up your paradoxical relationship with Twitter and the nature of trolling, and 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 I think it sums up the show pretty nicely. A show that really exposes the the lunacy of Twitter, but in a very funny way. The key element of trolls is that they have no empathy. Now, empathy is what we have to retain in our battle in here with the trolls. But I worry when I'm dealing with trolls all the time that I might myself be becoming a troll. And I have rules to try and stop myself becoming that. Number one, never have a go at anyone unless they've had a go at you first. But I break it all the time, even if it's someone I greatly admire. For example, here is Richard Dawkins, the great atheist writer, announcing on Twitter the death of his beloved mother. I say, sorry to hear that, Richard. She is, of course, not in a better place. Thank you for writing all that down. God, you must be like a secretary from the 1950s in your ability to write stuff down, because that's word for word correct. Well done. Yeah, that's one of Frank Skinner's favourite jokes of mine, which is interesting because Frank Skinner's not an atheist. He's very much a believer, but he likes the joke. For people who don't know, the way I do the show is it's a stand-up show, but I use a screen and I have some of my tweets on the screen and some of the mad reactions to my tweets on the screen. And that was, yeah, originally a joke on Twitter after Richard Dawkins announced the death of his mother. It's interesting because it's a joke that caused quite a lot of trouble, that one. Oh, did it? Uh, it? Yeah, amongst all sorts of people. And I kind of thought, it's atheist solidarity, isn't it, that joke? Because I'm an atheist as... You know, another thing that, sorry, this is now a sidebar, but another thing that's in Jews Don't Count is that I think that loads and loads of people, in the history, you used the word Judaism earlier. I'm writing a book about atheism. I, I never see the way that I talk about Jewishness as really about Judaism. I mean, I, I have a relationship to Judaism, but because I'm an atheist, what I always talk about is Jewishness, which is, you know, an ethnicity and a sort of, you know, ethno-cultural state of being, which is sort of unrelated, really, to the religion or certainly to any idea of an actual existing God. Anyway, Not completely yeah. unrelated, presumably. I mean, they're linked, but, but se- related, but separate. Well, one of the things I talk about in Jews Don't Count, which is very important, is that in terms of that particular conversation, rather than the more complex personal conversation about how you could be an atheist, and yet, as I do, still do Passover and Hanukkah and blah, 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 and why I do those things. Oh, but in the anti-racist conversation, what I get a lot is people telling me, it's not racist to be, uh, you know, whatever, to Jews because they're not a race, they're a religion. And they sort of downgrade racism against Jews to the less important category of uh, religious intolerance. And the thing I always point out to them is that I am an atheist, I'm a militant atheist, but that would have got me no free passes out of Auschwitz. Yeah. And the important point about that is 
if you're talking about anti-racism, you have to listen to what the racists are saying because that's what you have to guard against and fight against. And racists are not interested in whether I keep kosher. Yeah. The bloke shouting fuck the Jews at me at Chelsea has no idea whether I go to synagogue or not. So for me, it's completely kind of irrelevant as a religion. The religion is important, might have some importance to me in the way that I think more deeply, but in terms of the anti-racist conversation, it's irrelevant. The joke you make is that the, the Gestapo wouldn't give two fucks that your grandfather was, was an atheist. Yeah, yeah, and, uh, and also my grandfather was not an atheist, actually. Uh, 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 the, uh, he, he was a member of the Königsberg Reformed Jewish community and uh, went to Dachau after Kristallnacht. But I, yeah, me, if they were here now, they would put me in Auschwitz without thinking about it and they wouldn't let me go. Just to get back to the Richard Dawkins thing, I think that was interesting because... It's a question of taste, I guess. You know, I would like to know what Richard... I don't know what... Richard Dawkins didn't reply, so I don't know what Richard Dawkins thought of that joke. But I'm trying to make a point. I mean, and you've suffered at the hands of Twitter, right? You've suffered at that. And you got trolled a lot. And I'm quite interested in you talking a little bit in this about your experience, because I'm interested in all that, particularly because I'm doing this documentary about out-of-control anger and whatever. But I... I say in my bit about Richard Dawkins which is true, I think, is this is a very new technology. And we don't understand exactly what the ethics of it are and the you know the morals of, of making jokes on it, of having a go at people or whatever. I'm trying to work it out like anyone else. And if Richard Dawkins was actually upset by that joke, then, then I'm sorry about that, you know. But at the same time, I'm thinking it is a joke as, uh, about him being an atheist and me being an atheist. So I'm joining hands with this atheism, even if it's sort of, you know, might be a slightly, you know, insensitive thing to say at that moment about his mum. You know, but as I say, it's, I don't know where we are. And actually in the documentary, I'm quite keen on saying this is an exploration. It's not a, you know, definite, this is what this is doing to us programme. What are you going to explore in this documentary? What is it specifically about... Uh, trolls and Twitter and or, or... no no it, I mean they're, they're on it and it's not just Twitter it's uh, a sort of thought piece it's kind of a television I was quite lucky to do it in a way it's about what is it doing to us this level of anger that seems to have been raised by social media in general how much of it is spilling out as I talk in the show a little bit away from the screen it doesn't just confine to the screen I interview a bloke whose house was burnt down a tiktoker whose house was burnt down by in his opinion trolls I mean they haven't caught the people but he's become very big on tiktok and getting a lot of hate on tiktok and then his house, his, they set fire to his car and then his house caught fire. I interview and uh, a lot of it is personal people. So I try and avoid, to be honest, in this programme, talking about the stupid, like, actual issues that cause anger on social media. So I don't talk about anti-vaxxing or I don't talk about trans politics or whatever. Uh, you might see some images, but I, I don't want to get, I think once you get involved in the issues, then you get immediately bogged down in like, you know, intricacies of what causes huge rows on that thing. I just want to talk about the level of anger in general. And one of the things I say on it is something which I've said before, but I feel very strongly, which is I think what Twitter is, or indeed what most social media is, it's not a marketplace of ideas generally. It's a marketplace of identity. It's people saying, here I am. And one way in which people want to say, here I am, is very loudly. And the easiest way to do that is angrily. And so what you get is a sort of like monochroming, if you like, of identity, whereby people become utterly associated with their political cause, whatever it might be. And then their best way of saying that loudly is in opposition. The best way to say, 
I am an anti-vaxxer, whatever it might be, uh, is to be really, really angry with everyone who's pro-vaccines or whatever it might be. You see this all the time now, these kind of binary rows on Twitter. And I think it's just people wanting to say more and more loudly, I am this thing. I am, you know, this political cause and I'm going to keep shouting above the people because it's proving that about me. Because I think at heart, human beings are very desperate for identity. That's what it's about. It's about, it's a sort of, you know, philosophical and psychological and a little bit investigative because I also talk to professional trolls a bit. I talk about one guy, a guy called Chris Boozy, who's amazing, who runs a company that basically spots where private companies have deliberately targeted people you know, on Twitter mainly in order to smear them. Uh, and he says, he, he describes that practice as apocalyptic. He says that's going on all the time, all the time now. A private companies are being hired because A has got a vendetta against B or this company has got a vendetta against that company or whatever. And they work with people who you would never know. It's not the Ukrainian troll farms anymore, although they, they still exist. It's just people who are being paid to be horrible to other people for whatever reason. Yeah. Um, well, this is um, maybe this is what you were referring to when I think you say in the show, Twitter isn't real life until it is real life. And maybe this is an example of it becoming real life. But but also just saying here, the, the monochroming of, uh, of identity and and uh, re respectfully, you're quite engaged in, in quite a lot of these uh, I mean, and you do it in a, in a jokey way. But do you think that's speaking for yourself at all there in, in how you describe uh, the Twitter discourse? Uh, no, well, I, I don't think so. I mean, I think actually on the documentary, I think deliberately as a sort of meta joke, when we're talking about the monochrome of identity, we show quite a lot of bios on various platforms, uh, which are, you know, bios tend to be often full of like the flags of identity, right? Uh, and then the last one is me with Jew, right? But actually Jew is a very complex identity. Uh, Jew is not a monochromatic identity. It's like, you know, it's many, many things. And it's a very deliberately, comically provocative thing that my Twitter biography is Jew. And as you know from the show, it provokes anti-Semites, which is one of the reasons I do it. I get people furious that that's my Twitter biography. I'm very interested in the idea that identity is in fact nebulous and complex and you know, much, much more psychological than it is political. I mean, even though I think there are socio-political reasons for obviously why we think the way we do, I also think that the obsession with politicising everything means that the complex nature and nuances of human psychology get completely forgotten about all the time. There's a brilliant woman called Aisha Ekanbi. You should interview her. She's a friend, actually. All right. I guess yeah, she mentioned she's a friend of yours. Yeah. In fact, that's oh, one of the reasons I wanted... you gave me you gave her your book. Yes. Yeah, I don't know if she likes the book. I'll be honest with you. Uh, I gave her the book. She's interviewed in the documentary. And I think she's one of the most humane and complex think thinkers on Twitter. But I gave her the book and she wrote one thing to me and then I didn't hear from her. And I think oh, maybe she doesn't like it. And I wonder if she doesn't like it because there's, a, there's some people who think that the book is sort of calling for the same trigger offence, identity, blah, blah, for Jews as for other minorities, and it isn't. It's saying that doesn't exist, and here are the reasons why, and here's the progressive attitude, and here's where it, where it falls down with Jews. But the book is not a manifesto. I mean, this. Um, by the way, I don't know if this is what Aisha thinks, so I might be... Uh, but I do know... I have some people who really like the book have still said to me, I'm a bit worried this is sort of saying, oh, I want 
offensiveness towards Jews to be exactly the same as it is to other minorities. So therefore, are you pro this kind of trigger over monitored sort of identity politics world? And my attitude is like, I'm not really in the business of like saying I want or don't want anything. I'm saying I'm analysing and commentating. And I'm saying this does exist. Well, for better or worse, this this thing exists. This thing of people being outraged and offended and policing offence everywhere. And it doesn't seem to exist in the same way for Jews. Why not? And that isn't really about, so we must do this, because I'm not a sort of ideological planner. I'm someone who commentates and observes and says stuff. I certainly didn't t- take it as a manifesto. I, I, I think you say it a couple of times. Ask her, Winston, ask her if she liked it. I'm interested to know because she has a. I mean, this is just me being vulnerable now because I really like Aisha and she hasn't written back to me after I uh, gave her the book. Apart. She said one thing about it on direct message that she liked the thing where I point out that Dawn Butler's speech in 2019 mentions literally every possible category of minority, almost every category of humanity and misses out Jews still. And she said she liked that bit, but that's all, that's all I have from Aisha campaign. <laughs> but uh, as to people saying this is some sort of manifesto, I didn't read it as that at all. Uh, rather, what you, if you're asking for one thing, you're asking for the conversation. Yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, and and this, this is a very conversational book. And uh, anyway, I highly recommend it to anyone listening and actually pairs I found very nicely with Barry Weiss's book um, on anti-Semitism which is I think a slightly different look more from a a liberal point of view rather than a progressive point of view I found and more and covered the far right far left and Islamism as well as the progressive yeah Barry's interviewed me she's great there's also another book which I need to read called uh, People Love Dead Jews. Have you heard of that? No. Okay, it's by a woman called Dara Horn, and it makes a really good point. Uh, I haven't read it, but I know what the point is, which is that people in general, but also on the left or whatever, they will genuflect, they will or, you know, feel respectful, essentially, to Holocaust mentions. I mean, other things as well. I think she talks about pogroms or whatever, but, you know, this notion that if you bring that up, then you probably will get some, you know, an element of respect. It's quite, it would be quite unusual, except for someone from the really far right, not to sort of like do the whatever they need to do, the sort of bowing of the head, the silence, the respectfulness towards the mention of the Holocaust. But her point is that that creates a space in which offence now to, to living Jews is sort of made more okay. I'm actually going to America to talk about Jews Don't Count. It's just come out in America. It's a slightly different edition. It's got a preface. It's got uh, a few more uh, chapters in it. But amazingly, I'm going on Seth Meyers' late-night chat show to talk about it, which is interesting, I think, because, you know, I, I, I haven't been on any chat shows. I mean, I've been on loads of things to talk about it, but the idea of being on Graham Norton or Jonathan Ross to talk about this book feels, like, difficult. So it's interesting that uh, Seth Myers has found a space for it, but we'll see how that goes. It'd be very curious to hear what, how, how it um, resonates with Americans and it, what the similarities are going, going on over there by comparison with, with over here. Well, it's very much is a thing over there. I think Jews don't count on us, but it's, there's a couple of things that mix it up complicatedly. Number one, I think the notion that is very strong in my book that anti-Semitism is racism is something they have a slight problem with because racism is so associated, I think, in the American mind with anti-black racism that it's almost a protected word. And so that's one issue. I think the other issue is the lack of... There's been, there's been obviously, anti-Semitism in their politics, including in left-wing politics, but there's never, there hasn't been something like the Corbyn moment. So 
weirdly. There's been a little bit, if I, if I may, with, with the Democrats, the Ilhan Omar. And... Oh, yeah, you know, there's definitely been stuff. But the Corbyn moment, what I mean is that for years, as a Jew, I was much, much more aware of the idea that the American Jewish community were much more vocal uh, about their Jewishness and much more sort of empowered in a way than the British Jewish community, the Anglo-Jewish community, who are, to be honest, a bit British, a bit reserved and a bit like, let's not mention that we're Jewish and let's keep quiet about it and try and blend in even if they don't allow us in their golf clubs, whatever, right? But suddenly, during the 2015 to 2019, they kind of mobilised and there were, there were demonstrations and blah, blah, blah. And it's hardly surprising because anti-Semitism was in the news, you know, and it was a thing. So that was interesting because the American Jewish community haven't quite mobilised as a political force in that way, even though there's many more of them. Yeah. You mentioned that, I think, in the book you talk about, even in comedy, how Jewishness, it, characters like Larry David, for example, they, they absorb the identity much more so than British Jewish comedians no well, no that's interesting i mean so another thing i talk about in the book is it's a weird identity in itself being british and jewish because there aren't that many role models i guess is one thing like that thing i just talked about which is the not drawing attention to yourself and trying to be a bit british about being british and jewish rather than jewish that means that you know they're so in showbiz where you know there are a fair amount of jews and there are a fair amount of jewish comedians i say this in the book there's loads of Jewish comedians, but I am one of the only ones that really talks about it. So you, you can name a whole bunch of Jewish people, but I'm the only one who's made being Jewish sort of on the front foot of my identity, both seriously, but comically as well. I talk about it all the time in stand-up. And that's just a thing. Like The idea of not doing that for an American comedian is impossible. Mm. Do you know what I mean? The voice of American comedy for many years was that. I mean, it's changed now, I think, but you know, certainly sort of, from sort of 1950 to sort of 1990, the main mainstream voice of American comedy would have been a Jewish voice, I think. Someone once said that Friends is basically six old Jewish men talking around, but, but cast with young, attractive people, some, some of whom are not Jewish, some of whom are, David Schwimmer or whatever. But in Britain, we never had that. And so it always felt like that was something I was trying to slightly, a path I was trying to carve by myself a little bit of like, what does it mean to have a British Jewish comic voice? Mm. Um, David, thank you so much. Genuinely a thrill for me to, to speak with you. As, as I've told you, I'm a, I'm a huge fan. Uh, I really recommend Jews Don't Count to uh, listeners. And as I say goodbye, what are you excited about? Um, apart from your America trip and this uh, documentary you've got coming up, what else can, uh, can we be excited about for, for you? For me, well, I'm doing a Jews Don't Count documentary for Channel 4 which I'm starting to film with Louis Theroux's production company. So that should be, I am excited about that. That should be interesting. David Vidal, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.